Can yeah. I? Can we have like a little confession, like moment? Sure. I feel. Oh. Like oh. I love Stephanie more than she loves me. Like I feel like that's true. Wow. I don't know that that's true, but that's how I feel. As an outsider, I'm going to take your side. Thank you. <laughs> Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. This is the big one, episode 40, and we will be hooking you up with real answers to your tough questions from the Bible. I'm your good pal, Justin Party, hanging out here with my friends. I am Stephanie Keen. And we've got on the couch of wisdom. The PMB. Pastor Matt Brown, how you feeling, man? Really good. Back Listen, from uh, the state of Kentucky. Indeed. Now, this is episode 40 of The Debrief. Of the three of us, you are the only one who has previously turned 40. You got any advice for the show this uh, next couple of years of our life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hold on and embrace for the bin life crisis. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, you'll find that coming in, what, episode 44. So yeah. uh, see you in a month. Should be awesome. Should be awesome. Well, hey, we got so much good stuff today. We got great news to share with you. Uh, of course, we got a, some awesome questions that you guys have submitted, and we're going to jump into Acts 21. But if, before we get into any and all of that, we want to share with you guys some of the awesome five-star reviews you guys have been leaving us in the iTunes podcast directory as well as on our Facebook page. So our first review comes in from Lisa Chisapman. You need to say that with some feeling, dude. Lisa Chisapman. There we go. Lisa. Oh, Lisa. Lisa Chisapman. There it is. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for diving deeper on The Debrief. Growing up listening to our pastor made me want to snooze, but I can't get enough (laughs) of Sundays at Sandals Church and The Debrief. I can feel the world peeling back layers in my heart, and I'm so thankful. Awesome. Love that mm. one. That was great. That was like a Hallmark card from Jesus. That was pretty sweet, huh? Nice and tight. Mm. Yeah, this next one comes from Savannah. She sent this in on Facebook and she says, Hi guys, I love listening to the debrief on my way to and from work. I find that spending that long commute learning about the word sets me up to have a better day and the time goes by so much faster. Lately, I've been spending a ton of time, like months, working in my company's offices in India and other parts of Asia. Mm. Thanks to this awesome podcast, the knowledge and understanding I've gained have strengthened my faith and better equipped me to live with and love people in countries where knowing Jesus is rare. I love listening to your India stories. They make me feel even more connected with my Sandals Church family with them otherwise pretty isolated from other believers. PMB, PRD, and SKN, thank you so much for diving in deeper Mm. each week. I know I got a little nickname there. I think I've read and learned more scripture in the last year than in my whole life combined, thanks to 252 and the debrief. Mm. That's awesome. That is Mm. awesome. All right, guys. Well, we got one awesome big piece of news before we jump into uh, some follow-up questions here. And this is the deal. We are actually hiring for a full-time role here working with us on the show. And uh, it's for a content and media producer. So if you are just super awesome, you love the debrief, um, we think maybe you should be here on our team helping us get the show ready. We're looking for somebody to help us um, work back and forth with you guys, the listeners, uh, compiling all the questions, getting them ready. Uh, we spend quite a bit of time doing that every week, and we want to bring somebody in to really focus exclusively on that to help make the show even better in 2017. And then also, we think we can take a lot of the stuff that you share, Pastor Map, here on the debrief and pull it out in other places, get it online in social media and other ways so that what we have going on here on the debrief is uh, even more helpful and useful to people. So mm-hmm. man, please, even if you do not uh, feel like you're the right person for this job, if you guys would help us spread the word, we got to know that there's somebody out there who loves writing, who loves people, who loves Jesus and is totally obsessed with podcasts. And mm-hmm. this is like their dream job. So if you guys can help us spread the word, you can find the job online at bit.ly slash debrief job, bit.ly slash debrief job and uh, help us get the most awesome 
person here. Yeah, we're ready to grow our family. I'm ready for someone else to come hang out. That's right. Stephanie's heart is growing. Is, your, is yours big enough? Is yours growing? My heart is complete with the people who are present, but I will pray about making room for more. Wow. Mm. Wow. Mm. That was a true, true answer. Deep wisdom. See, <laughs> yeah. somebody right now should be tweeting that out. It could be you. <laughs> it could be you. All right. Well, let's jump into some awesome questions, man. Uh, we got some great follow-up from the last couple of weeks of sermons. And this first one, Nancy writes in and asks, you spoke on how God uses preaching in general and through you specifically, but you've also mentioned that you are not perfect and sometimes make mistakes. What should we do when you hear you make a mistake when you're preaching or when you say something that does not fit well with what the Bible says? Thank you for thinking about this. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. Um, well, first of all, you're absolutely right. I, I am not perfect. Um, you know, I preach five times, and so oftentimes I will say something and it just comes out wrong. I mean, that's just the reality of uh, communication style. I'm not preaching from written notes. Um, it's an organic, uh, emotional, spiritual experience, and sometimes the words don't come out right. And so usually I try to fix that um, in the next sermon, um, which doesn't always help in the particular message that you hear, right. but it will be edited in the version that goes out during the week. So, um, you know, first thing is, is give me grace. Uh, just know that the communication process is a difficult process, especially, uh, when engaging in the type of communication that I'm, I'm doing where I'm standing up there in a one-way conversation for 35 minutes. I mean, the more you talk, the more, uh, opportunities are to make mistakes. So I would say give grace. Uh, as for the question about something that's not biblical, um, you know, I, I wrestle with these issues. I do the best I can. Uh, I'm not aware of any unbiblical things that I've stated. If I had, then I would uh, correct them. Sometimes things are wrong. I get a verse wrong. I, you know. Well, I, that I, happened even two weeks ago when you said eight instead of seven or something yeah, like that. Yeah, the seven sons of Sceva. Right, I don't know yeah. why my mind did that. It, it went eight, seven or seven sons of yeah. Sceva, the high priest. And I was like, boom, eight. And that's just wrong. And so yeah. that happened. So, um, but I don't know that it's unbiblical. It was no. just inaccurate. Yeah. So, so that happens. I mean, that's just a part of the process. And, and I walk off stage going, why did I say that? Well, yeah. And then in that case, you corrected it in all of your sermons on Sunday morning. And then we came back here and you even wanted to yeah. share that. So, so that happens. So I would just say, you know, give grace and, um, you know, pray for me that I would get things um, as accurate as possible, knowing that it is not a perfect process. But in that, I believe firmly that God speaks when preachers preach, and that you should have uh, a personal connection with the, with the person that you are led by. If not, you need to find somebody else that you connect with and that you feel led by, because that's a very, very important way in which God connects with you personally. And so I think that the selection of a pastor is a very, very personal thing, and it's something that you shouldn't take lightly, and it's something that you should be very, very serious about. So give grace, um, you know, but ultimately, if you find yourself not agreeing on a regular basis with what, what I say, I think that's God's invitation for you to find another church. Um you know, and pray for me uh, from a distance in love that, uh, you know, whatever it is that I'm teaching that's wrong would be corrected through the power of the Holy Spirit and wise counsel. So, um, you know, that's what I would say. But thank you, Nancy, for the, that point. I think that that's absolutely, um, you know, essential to understand. I'm not the Pope when I stand up. What I speak is not infallible, and it certainly is not the Word of God. But it is a God-ordained process that God has historically used throughout the Bible to communicate His Word. God uses people to teach us his personality through the personality of others. And so I think that's important. So thanks, Nancy. Keep praying for me. And, um, uh, you know, I appreciate your grace and forgiveness beforehand. Should, should we set up a special email that Stephanie can get any mistakes you make, and then she can sit down with you once a week, and you guys can just have a, a meeting where she says, here's everything you said wrong that's yeah. from, the, from the people. Yeah. <laughs> let's do that. Yeah, let's not do that. Yeah, no, I don't think that's going to go well for either of us. Well, there so. you go. Yeah. Stephanie might get fired. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, this next uh, follow-up question comes from Grace, and she says, with all the terrible news and current events that are happening in our country and around the world, I find myself being fearful, anxious, and discouraged. How can I find peace and rest in Christ and accept the consequences? What can I do as a Christian to remind myself that God is in control? Yeah, so let, let's just speak truth. There has never been a more peaceful time in human history than what we are going through right now, mm. period. We haven't had a major world conflict in years. Um, this will be the third generation of Americans who have not experienced a global conflict. Mm -hmm. Never in the history of the world has there been such a lack of war, death, famine. I mean, this is why you're seeing the population of the earth just explode. And now our challenges are how do we feed all these people and, and get all these people, you know, medicine and right. all of these things. So the, the media uses uh, scare tactics to get us to watch because we don't watch unless we're afraid. And that's the reality. The reality is crime rates are dropping, murder rates are dropping, global conflict is dropping, disease is dropping. We're living long and we don't know what to do. There are more jobs now. People are making more money than at any point in time in human history. That's a reality. That's not to say that things can't improve. It's just we've been really, really blessed. I mean, the things that we're fighting about, you know, like I haven't had a raise. Man, most of humans in human history were slaves. So, right, they would all <laughs> they would all gladly, right. you know, make uh, minimum wage or whatever it is to come work here and have these benefits and have, you know, the the lifestyle that we live. So we're very, very blessed. Um, you know, like I said, can it improve? Absolutely. But things are, are, are really, really good in terms of human history. We're not being conquered. We're not being enslaved. You know, we're not being invaded. These things are not happening. And historically, that's what people have had to deal with. When you read history, right? Stronger, more powerful uh, nations come in and they conquer and take over and enslave. That is yep. the history of the world. And so we now have enjoyed this thing called America for, you know, 240 plus years. And uh, it's America is not perfect and needs a lot of help. Um, and uh, for a period of time has enslaved a certain group of people, which was awful and ugly, but that has been the pattern of human history. And so um, we're very, very blessed to live here now. Um, so I just think we need to be reminded of the truth of life in which we live right now. Having said that, God is still in control. Um, Christians have been blessed historically, whether a Pharaoh was in charge, right? They were blessed, uh, regardless of who is elected uh, today, uh, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, neither of them are Pharaoh. Um, you know, we're not being conquered by the Persians. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not going to rule and reign and make us bow down to his idol. Uh, it won't be Alexander the Great. It's not going to be Nero. It's not going to be some of the insane popes that we've had in the past or some of the, you know, King George, um, you know, in England or whoever it is, we're going to survive this and God is in control. And ultimately, whichever candidate is elected will bring about God's will because he is in control. And um, we just need to trust in that. Our, our security does not come from um, those in political power around us. Our security comes from in Christ. And so we need to remember Paul when he's imprisoned. He says, I know who, in whom I have entrusted to keep what is most valuable to me, and that's his soul. And he writes this to us from imprisonment in Rome, knowing he's facing impending death. So he's secure because he knows that ultimately his soul is protected by God for all eternity, and we need to take great comfort in that. We are not promised, uh, you know, a stress-free life. We're not promised, um, you know, uh, that we're all going to be wealthy and live to be 100 years old with no issues whatsoever and fall, you know, gently asleep to our death as we transition you know, into the kingdom of God. So we just need to know that God's in control. He has a plan. He loves us in spite of what's happening around us. Mm -hmm. And so I said that a couple of weeks ago, somebody actually challenged me on that on Twitter, um, because I think a lot of us assume that our experiences in life 
are a picture of who God is. And, and that, is, that is not what the Bible teaches. That's why we need to understand scriptures, because the Bible teaches us that God is who he says he is, and how he feels about it is based upon what he says he feels about us, not based upon our circumstances and what's happening around us. And that's why so many people fall away from the gospel and from God, is because they assume that the world around them and the God who wants to live in them and with them is the same, and they're not. The world around us is, is dark, broken, and a mess. God, who is in heaven, is peaceful, loving, and it invites us into eternal relationship with Him because He loves us. And, um, and again, if you don't agree with me biblically, look at what happened to Jesus on the cross. The Bible says God loved His one and only Son, but He also loved us, and so He caused Jesus to suffer to bring us back into His life. And so, so anyways, that's a long, long answer, but I'll be praying for you. Um, I'll be honest, um, I, I, I've never had as much anxiety about voting as I did uh, today. Yeah, if you're it, listening in the future, this is uh, November 8th, the election yeah, day. Yeah, it, it made me sick. I mean, I I had to vote on issues like should, you know, people in uh, the porn industry wear condoms? You know, should should there be the legalization of marijuana? Should we let more, you know, dangerous felons out of prison? I mean, this is the world we live in. I feel like Sodom and Gomorrah is going, whew, these guys are nuts. So, um, you know, I had, I had a lot of anxiety because our, our, our society is broken um, in that we don't seem to have any kind of moral compass or understanding of, of how to move forward. And, um, and that's, that's very, very frightening to me because we're in uncharted territory morally. Mm-hmm. And um, that is scary. So, um, you know, and that's what I think, uh, you know, Pax Americana, you know what Pax Romana, Romana yeah, is, yeah. so Roman peace, you know. So the, the peace that America has brought to the world I think has come at a great cost to us as Americans because we have grown fat morally and we've grown lax. And uh, I think that at the end, that's going to cause us a great deal of harm. So, Yeah, I love the perspective you brought on that. I'm in the middle of listening to a series of podcasts on World War One right now, and it's literally been so crazy to me. I mean, it's exactly 100 years ago right now. We're at the peak of the war. America was about to jump in and hundreds of thousands of people were dying every single month. You know, huge amounts of people just totally crazy. And that's only like two more of my lifetimes ago, not that long ago. Yeah. And I mean, history repeats itself. And that's why, you know, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but uh, German speaking uh, immigrants were banned from America and, and, and were alienated during World War One because mm-hmm. it was great fear of infiltration. Yeah. People don't realize that. So it wasn't just the Japanese in World War II. Um, it hasn't just been African-Americans who have been oppressed. I mean, America has been emotionally reactive in many ways to immigrants and people coming into the country. And so that's just part of the process. And, you know, it's not a perfect process. And we need to understand that, that oftentimes we're repeating things over and over again. But, you know, our history uh, is pretty sketchy on, on a lot of issues, but we're still blessed to live here. And I, and I, having traveled, and I think you both can give me a hearty amen, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else because things, although broken, work very well. And, uh, I would rather be at the DMV all day, every day than any <laughs> government institution in India, Africa, China. In, I, I mean, literally, things don't work there. Yes. And, um, you know, you know, when we were in India, I told you, you know, God help you if you have a heart attack, because there's no oh, yeah. A, getting to you, and then B, getting you to a hospital. You no. are dead. Yes. Dead. I mean, unless someone has the gift of flying who can mm-hmm. come in and pick you up and take you somewhere, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So That's true. All right. Okay. This next one, this next question is so great. It comes from Jeffrey. He's, he writes, I am an 11-year-old. I go to Redlands Christian School and have... Wait, pre- wait. We have an 11-year-old that listens to the debrief. I know, dude. Shout out to this yeah. kid. What's up, Jeffrey? Yeah. I go to Christian School and have preached at my school many times and feel like God is speaking through me. All my friends are telling me I should preach every week, but I'm too young to start preaching and starting my ministry now. 
So he doesn't really ask a question, but I think he's looking for your advice based on yeah. when you were talking about preachers and their call. Yes, Jeffrey, you are too young to start now. I <laughs> want to affirm that, but I also want to affirm that that's amazing that you at such a young age are realizing what maybe God has called you to do. So I'm going to affirm that. And, uh, you know, maybe you'll be the next uh, pastor at Sandals Church. And so we will be led in the future by Pastor Jeffrey. That'd be pretty awesome. Uh, wouldn't that be amazing if uh, we heard from him on the debrief first and one day he's our pastor? That'd oh, totally. Cool. That'd be so cool. So just know, man, uh, God loves you. I love you. Ministry will not be easy. But if God's called you to do it, you will not be happy doing anything else. So uh, praise God, Jeffrey. Study up. Learn your Bible so that you can help people understand it. Totally. All right, this next uh, follow-up question we have is actually an audio follow-up question from our friend Patty. Our very first sense. audio question That's on right. the show. I was just listening to the debrief. Justin Party has gone downhill. He is finished. He just said, old ladies, <laughs> ask him what, who, how old is old. <laughs> hey, I'm 66 and still cute. So I'm going to just sum all that up and say that Patty's question is, how old is old? Pastor Matt, got an answer? I think I feel old. (laughs) And I think I'm 20 years younger than Patty. So uh, to quote uh, Dr. Ben Carson, the former uh, person running for president of the United States, is when you are 65 years old, you fall into the category of senior citizens and you're considered a senior citizen. He refers to both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as seniors. Um, and so the reality is as America, we are not real with age. So how old is old? You know, uh, when you're in your mid sixties, you are officially a senior (laughs) citizen and you are old. So love you, Patty. Um, uh, appreciate you, but, um, yeah. All right. I've heard you in your sermon say before, if you have to ask, am I old? You are old. And I also heard you just a minute ago say everything you've said in your sermons is right and true. Mm. So I'm pretty sure we got the answer for that. Um, Yeah. Or maybe I maybe I miss maybe I misheard you on, on one of those things. Yeah, but with age comes wisdom. So Patty, it's not all bad. That's true. That's true. Looking looking forward to picking some of that wisdom up in the future. Well, hey, let's jump into Acts chapter twenty one. We got a lot of stuff going on in this mm-hmm. chapter. It's a good one. So let's get right into it. All right. So in verse four, it says, "We went ashore and found the local believers and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem." So my first question here is, how did Paul and his crew find these local believers when it seems like they just came somewhere new? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is a church that's been planted there. So one of the ways that they would identify themselves in these cities is, first of all, he had to investigate and find them. He has some time to do that. So there was probably the symbol of the fish on maybe your doorstep or, or uh, you know, maybe your store. Symbol of the fish? Yeah, so... Um, we have to put this on the website, but it's the symbol of the fish. So the early church symbol was not the cross. The early church symbol, because it wouldn't have made any sense. I mean, imagine if Sandals Church symbol was the was the gas chamber, right? Or the electric chair. That's bizarre. That's what the cross was then. Mm-hmm. The symbol of the early church was the fish. And inside the fish, they would write um, the name of Jesus in it, um, I-X-O-Y-E, uh, Ichthus. And so it meant Jesus. And so uh, one believer would would draw the first part of the fish, and then another would finish it. And so they had to be very, very protective and careful with who knew that they were followers of Jesus. Because as at this time, you know, uh, Romans are deciding... So here's the question. Is Christianity simply a sect of Judaism, Mm -hmm. or is this a new religion? So here's why it's important. Because Rome had designated uh, Judaism as an officially accepted religion. 
So if you weren't officially accepted, you were illegal. And so the question is, and this is why there's this division, uh, the Jews are saying, nope, this is not us. And uh, the Christians are saying, we are simply an extension of Judaism. And so there, there's this there's this fight. And this ultimately is going to get decided right before AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. And actually becoming a Christian is declared illegal mm. by uh uh, Jewish uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. They actually declare it illegal. Hmm. Up to 8070, so think about that, for about 40 years, there was a debate within Judaism, Is which a lot of Jews don't understand that. Uh, is Christianity simply Judaism fulfilled, or is it a separate religion? Right. Ultimately, Judaism would officially decide it's a separate religion and is to be condemned. And that really, really divides Judaism and Christianity forever in about AD 70. And it put Jewish converts to Christianity in a really, really difficult place. Because what do I do? I, you know, and, and most of them simply became Christians and, and live like Gentiles. And we lost a lot of the Jewish beauty and flavor within the church. And it's really, really tragic and really, really sad that we don't get to see throughout history a lot of strong Jewish communities maintaining their Jewish culture and yet following Christ. But they were banned from synagogues. They were banned from Jewish culture. They would have been kicked out of neighborhoods. I mean, it became illegal. Mm -hmm. You could not associate with them. And um, it was a very, very difficult time for um, Jewish Christians. And we see in this chapter that James says thousands, thousands of Jews are converting to Christianity, which is, is awesome but, at the, but on the other end, it became a very, very difficult thing for the Gentile converts to Christianity because Jews maintained their nationalism and really, really forgot to live a gospel-centered life rather than a Jewish-centered life. And ultimately, the divide became uh, irreparable. So what was your second part of the question? Well, the second part is these guys are prophesying in the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. And just in the last chapter, we talked about how Paul was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. How, what do we do with that? How do we know who's right? Yeah, so scholars don't all agree. So, you know, there's there's really a, a couple of uh, options that I see here. One is that the people are right and Paul is wrong. Secondly, is the people are wrong and, and Paul is right, or, you know, maybe something else. And so here's what I would say is, I believe that they are hearing from the Holy Spirit. I believe that they are hearing accurately that Paul is going to be imprisoned and perhaps faith's death in Jerusalem. Here's where I think they're wrong. I think their interpretation of the vision is wrong. So they got the right vision, they heard the right truth from the Holy Spirit, but their interpretation is wrong. And this is why it's so important. Simply because somebody says God says doesn't mean that they understand what God means. And so we always have to be very, very careful because people can A, use God said as a manipulation. People can use God said as, you know, they don't really fully understand what it means. And so we got to be really, really careful here. So the church rightly interpreted what the Spirit was saying. They wrongly interpreted what they should do about it. So I think Paul mm -hmm. agrees. Yep, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is saying the same thing in every town. If I go to Jerusalem, it's going to be bad. However, he's also saying, I am bound by this same Spirit that is warning me that I need to go. And so ultimately, I think the Apostle Paul was right. And what's interesting is Luke himself, the author of the book of Acts, doesn't want him to go. He sides with the church. And so, you know, this is just so difficult for us as Christians to navigate this because sometimes good Christians can feel led in different directions by God. And so I remember a couple of years ago, we had a, a young man on staff here at Sandals that I discipled, and he felt passionate that he was supposed to go on the mission field. He felt called to the mission field. And he shared this with me, and I didn't feel good about it. Mm -hmm. I just I just did not agree 
with his calling. And I had a lot of objections. And that really, really bothered him. And uh, he didn't handle that well. And really, really kind of rallied people to his calling against me. And ultimately, this is what I said to the young man who felt called to missions. I said, you've got to do what you feel God has called you to do, but I have to do the same. Mm -hmm. So my responsibility and every Christian's responsibility is to speak the words they feel that God is calling them to speak and 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 to do what God is calling them to do. So the young man, you know, how do you how do you reason with that? Yeah. He is at Sandals, feels like God's calling to the mission field. I'm at Sandals, I'm the spiritual leader of this church. I'm going, I don't, I don't think so. I don't see it. At the end of the day, it's my job to tell him what I believe is true, and it's his job to do what he believes God is calling him to do. And that was impossible for him to reconcile. He couldn't reconcile those two things. And I just said, look, you're not gonna stand before God on judgment day and be judged by me. You're going to be judged by God. And so am I. And so ultimately our, our friendship suffered and our relationship has never been the same. And that's mm-hmm. tragic, but he had to do what God, he felt like God was calling him to do. And I had to do the same. And we did not agree. Yeah. Paul and Barnabas didn't agree. Here the church and Paul don't agree. So what does Paul have to do? Paul has to do what he believes God is calling him to do. And so just understand this process is not always easy to figure out. And mm-hmm. and sometimes we're like, oh my gosh, you know, how can two people who love Jesus and are called by God be getting two different pieces of information? Um, well, they really weren't. They were both were hearing that God was saying, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. Mm-hmm. They, they developed different interpretations from that call. And ultimately, I think the Apostle Paul was right in doing what he needed to do because God told him that he will speak before kings and nations. And the next, you know, uh, seven chapters in the book of Acts is all about Paul doing that. Now, I don't think Paul foresaw that he would be imprisoned, that that's the way he was going to ultimately stand before, you know, Rome and Caesar and proclaim the gospel. Um, Because Paul does not, for the next seven chapters, he's going to talk about his innocence, but he's going to proclaim the gospel. So what's most important to Paul is not getting out of prison. What's most important to Paul is that he would know that he's in prison because of his faith in Jesus Christ, who is in fact the risen Son of God. Right. That was a long answer. Well, it was, a, it was a tough it was question. A question. Yeah, it was yeah. a tough question. Okay, so verses 7 through 8 say, The next day we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. So this... Philip here, he would have seen Paul supervise the death of Stephen back in Acts chapter 7, and they were picked to lead in the church alongside one another. I think we might assume that they were maybe close friends or at least knew each other. It feels pretty gracious of him now to invite Paul and his crew to stay with him. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that we need to all understand as Christians, man. The key to opening up the power of God in your life is grace for others. And this is what's keeping blessings from your life. This is what is, you know, imprisoning you to the anxiety that you feel and the misery that you feel is you have to forgive others like Christ has forgiven you. And when you do that, you will be set free. And Philip, I mean, think about it. The church lost their greatest preacher because Paul led the charge for the killing of Stephen. And now Philip is, you know, coming alongside Paul, giving Paul grace. You know, Paul killed this guy's responsible, not only for the death of Stephen, but for many other Christians and the imprisonment of church leaders. But now Philip is saying, look, we've moved beyond that. You've, you've apologized. You can't make, the, he can't make the death of Stephen right, right? You can't. Stephen was lost. 
However, there was grace given, and Paul has changed. He's really a different person, and now he is trying to convince others and ultimately facing the same persecution that Stephen, you know, faced. And that's pretty profound, Mm -hmm. and uh, ultimately will suffer at the same fate almost as Stephen. And uh, I mean, he's been beaten. I mean, this guy's this guy's been stoned. Uh, he's been beaten, you know, 40 times. I mean, he's undergone incredibly difficult things because of his faith, and the church knows he's the real deal. But all of us need to be willing to let people change, and that's what Philip does, and it's amazing. Hey, if you just wrote down, the key to opening up the power of God in your life is grace for others, you might be who we're looking for on our content producer role. Just a heads up. If you've already tweeted that, you should consider applying. Okay, let's keep going. So in verses 9 through 10, it says that Philip had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. So why does Luke specifically point out here that that's four unmarried daughters that Philip has? Yeah, I think there's two reasons. Is Number one, you know, if you're a woman, you need to understand that, that God has always loved you and always empowered you with gifts that are, are, are equal uh, to men. So we're, we're equal in the sense that men and women are loved by God in the same way. However, we have different roles in the church and men have different responsibilities within the church and within the home. However, women are lifted up according to the gospel. So think about the book of Luke begins with the prophetess Anna, and she, she testifies to the truth of who mm-hmm. Jesus is. And so here we have in Acts 21, Philip has four daughters who are unmarried. And here's why that's important, because their value... And their uh, giftedness is not tied to a man. Hmm. It's tied to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, there are women who are speaking boldly for God and powerfully for God. And so in Acts 2, Peter says that this will happen. Young men and women will prophesy in the name of Jesus, and mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all. And this is incredible. And this is evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit. And so this is just a testament, if you're a woman listening, to your value, to your place in your church to the place in the church and to the need for you to speak the truth of who God is within the context of church. And so a lot of women, when you're sitting in a small group and somebody's sharing something and you know, you know, you want to hit the the BS button (laughs) because you know it's not true. You need to speak those words in love, but to speak those words and speak truth over people. Um, You know, in my, my former community group, we had a a young woman, um, uh, yeah, She's going to love that I said young woman. Young woman, <laughs> uh, an amazing woman, you know, a professor uh, at one of the local universities, just gifted and powerful, but didn't realize she had like this prophetic voice in prayer. And it's really challenged her on that and, she, and to use that gift because she became a lioness, man, when she spoke for God and it was powerful, but it needed to be released and say, look, you need to use that gift and speak and pray over people because it was awesome. And I remember when I shared that in small group, everybody's like, oh my gosh, yes, because it was so clearly her gift. And so if you're a woman, just know that God will, you know, in the same way that maybe God would use me on a Sunday to, pro- to proclaim the truth to the church at large, God will use you in your community group to proclaim the truth to someone else and to speak his words uh, prophetically about what's going to happen or or what God is saying, and, and you need to understand that. So the gift of prophecy is two things. The proclamation of God's truth, which is the normal use of the gift. The unusual use of the gift is the foretelling of the future, mm-hmm. and that needs to be used very, very carefully um, because, uh, you know, when you get it wrong, then you're not a prophet. So, And then we have famous Agabus, who's going to roll in, one of your favorite names, and yes. he's going to speak some truth and download it to Paul. Uh, and it sounds like he might have the unusual gift of prophecy yeah. for 
Well, it doesn't sound like it becomes clear that he does, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and the church is dependent upon this because they don't have the scriptures yet. They, they don't understand how to operate as the church, and you need to be able to, with you know, because now our church, like uh, we go back to Nancy's comment, we have the Bible to go back to and say, is what Pastor Matt said true or not? In the early church, they didn't have that. You know, the letters of Paul are being distributed, but for the most part, how do you know whether that's true or not? You need prophets in the church to say yes or no. Mm. Otherwise, right, it's everybody's opinion. And um, uh, so that gift was super important in the early church. And, um, and I still think it's important. It's just we, have, we can all read Scripture now and say yes or no and make an evaluation. But when then, man, they didn't have the New Testament yet. So they only had the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. All right, so I, I love—this is awesome. Agabus comes over, takes Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, which is pretty bold, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers, Luke said, all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But he said, why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. So Kevin wrote in and asked about this. Uh, d- does Paul see this advice from others about not traveling to Jerusalem as warnings or really as affirmation of God's will uh, that he's moving toward? Yeah, I, I think Paul is clearly frustrated by their continual warnings. I mean, he's heard this in every town, everywhere he goes. The church is repetitively heard from the Holy Spirit saying, look, doom and gloom, bro, when you go to Jerusalem, this is not going to go well. And we're really, really concerned. And remember, Paul is probably traveling with a, a contingent of individuals carrying a very, very large offering to bless these knuckleheads in <laughs> Jerusalem who are ultimately going to imprison him and try to kill him. Mm-hmm. Interesting, right? right. Um, you know, Jesus says Jerusalem never gets it right. They've never got it right in their history. Uh, you know, when we go to, you know, to Israel, um, all the people from our church are like, how can the Jews have all this information and get it wrong? Well, if you read your Bible... That's what they do best, get it wrong. And so, I mean, that's why we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. We have these prophets, Ezekiel, that speak out. Hey, guys, you're getting it wrong. Um, and the truth is, you know, it's one thing to to judge the Jews, but what we should really do is judge ourselves, because the truth is we get it wrong as people all the time, and we rebel against God and His truth and His Word, and so we need to be aware of that. So I, I think Paul is frustrated because he's like, look, I've heard this. You guys are killing me. You're, you're, I think what he's saying is you're making it worse. Mm-hmm. I, underst- I understand how difficult this is. Now you're not only putting on me that I'm, go- I'm going to face physical harm when I go, but you're making me feel terrible because now I'm breaking your heart. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing for me to face a broken body. It's another thing for me to carry how I'm hurting you. Mm-hmm. And that just shows Paul's love as a pastor and he cares for these individuals and he doesn't want to hurt them and it makes it worse. But ultimately he feels like this is what he's got to do. Yeah. So, so I, go ahead. I've got a question here. Maybe not when we've got people that we're trying to tell, like we think you're doing the wrong thing, but it seems in this, like he's even just brokenhearted over their emotional response to what's going to happen to him. What does it look like for us to be real with people about how we're feeling about what they're going to do without breaking their heart and somehow making it worse for them? Well, again, I mean, let's go back to, you know, the young man in our church who felt called to missions. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I handled it um, perfectly, but, um, you know, whenever we disagree and there's a separation of people who love each other, you know, your emotions are a part of the process. And so we have to be aware of that. Um, so I think what we need to do is we need to understand that our emotions are at play. It's not just the spirit speaking. 
but it's our own spirit speaking, and mm-hmm. we got to be very, very careful in that process. So I think that, um, again, ultimately, we need to give counsel, and we need to let people make their decisions. You know, I, I, I feel like God speaks through me. Um, I, I have seen God speak through me. I have been right a lot of times, and I just have to trust. I have to trust that the Holy Spirit has spoken through me and I need to speak those words. And that's why it's important if you feel like you have this gift that you need, try it out, right? Because if you get it wrong 10 times in a row, you don't have the gift. Mm-hmm. You know, shut up. You don't, you don't have it. But, you know, if you, I don't even want to say you get it right more times than not, but if your impression is right. And um, others' impression too, right? Yeah, like I'll give you an example. When I was in a small group, you know, we, we had one of our pastors who had been in this process to adopt a kid from Ethiopia. And Ethiopia shut it down, you know, the whole, everyone shut it down. And um, it was Pastor Andrew's wife, Becca, was just in tears. And she just said, I don't understand how God could call us to adopt a kid from Ethiopia if they're going to shut down the process. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak. And this is what I said. God doesn't need Ethiopia to bring you your child from Ethiopia. He is bigger than the country. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty scary statement to make, right? right? I'm saying Mm -hmm. God doesn't need this whole process to work for you to get your kid that he's called you to parent. Three weeks later, they have their son. Yeah, in their home. In their home, who came from Ethiopia, who was already in America, mm-hmm. right? So, and, that, and that's when I realized, well, okay, wow, God can prophetically speak through me. I mean, that's pretty, mm-hmm. that's a pretty incredible mm-hmm. moment in, in the life of our community group uh, and in the life of my friendship with Andrew and Becca. Um, and, and I've just learned that you've got to speak that truth um, when you feel like God is, 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 and how do you know when it's God? It's when, when you, when you almost can't hold it in, you know, you know that, okay, I've got to share this information and you've got to have courage and you've got to speak that truth, um, and let the chips fall where they may. And sometimes here's the sad thing. You lose friendships for speaking truth. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times I've lost friends, I've lost staff members, I've lost leaders in this church when I have spoken what I believe God's truth is. You know what? I don't love hearing truth from God from other people. Other people don't love hearing it from me. I mean, that right? Why does God have to speak to you? Because you don't get it. You don't get. I mean, Do you right? Want, can you look at Stephanie when you're saying? Uh, I don't know. I feel compelled so to look at you. I mean, why? Why on earth would someone need to speak prophetically to you? Right. Because what is it going to take for you to understand what God wants you to do? So he's like, yeah. you know, downloads it from somebody else. And and for the most time, for the most part, people people don't enjoy that. Uh, you know, and so I, I would say I, I'm very careful. I mean, I'm so careful to say God says. I just you 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 work with me every day. Mm-hmm. I just don't say that because mm-hmm. I think people can use it as manipulative. If you hear me say, you know, God says, you know, um, you know, you you and I have had some tough conversations. Yeah. You know, where I've spoken to you and right. and you've said no. Yeah. You know, uh, I've wanted to kill you in the name of Jesus a couple times. Yes. But we work through it and, and we're better for it. But. Um, be very wary of people who are always saying God says. Here's the first way. The first uh, lesson, if you're a prophet, is hold your tongue unless you're sure. Mm. Because you do a disservice to people and you can rattle people's faith if you're just flapping your lips and it's not from God. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm always very, very cautious to say God said, uh, you know, and um, it's just, it's just be very, very careful of leaders who are constantly running around saying God said, because usually... They are emotionally unhealthy people who are manipulating you. That's that, that's what I've learned in twenty years plus of ministry, is leaders who constantly have to press the God button usually are insecure people who don't know what they're doing. That was a little heavier than I thought. It was good. Yeah, it was yeah. good. Thank you. 
So in verses 15 through 19, now Paul is arriving in Jerusalem. And he says, after this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to meet James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. So why does it only mention James here and not any of the other apostles who were in Jerusalem last time we heard? Yeah, so here's part of the challenge, right? Luke is not telling us everything. And there's a, there's a bunch of people who want all the details. Unfortunately, Luke doesn't, doesn't tell us everything. He only wants to tell us what he felt that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know. Mm-hmm. So we don't know where the apostles are. I think we can guess based upon the text that they're no longer there. So they have scattered throughout the known world, mm-hmm. uh, and they, they are preaching. So Peter's probably in Rome. Uh, John has headed up probably to Ephesus, where he is now. He will eventually become the bishop. He's taken Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. There's a beautiful tomb there that you can go visit. It's one of the most spiritual places I've been. In I Ephesus? love it. In, uh, it's in the mountains just outside of Ephesus. It's one of the most uniquely spiritual places I've ever been. Hmm. Um, literally felt the presence of God when I walked into it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty awesome. Uh, so the Catholics, you know, go way too far on, on on revering her. And as Protestants, we don't do enough, I don't mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. So anyways, uh, they've, they've scattered. And so now the church at Jerusalem is led by elders. So it's similar to, you know, Sandals Church. They have their own pastors and they have their own James. So I would be James at Sandals Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are leading this. And here's the thing that's so hard about this passage. It says that initially they're warmly welcomed. Mm-hmm. But then in the very next sentence, right, I mean, Paul's going to be getting beat up and his life, literally, right. he's going to lose his life by these same people if it were not for the Roman soldiers. So here's what I think is, is I think it was kind of a tenuous greeting. Mm. So they warmly welcome them. They're excited to hear the good news. But here's the reality. The church in Jerusalem, and this is very careful, as every church is, is a political entity. And so anybody who tells you that our church isn't political, that we just do the will of God is not being real with themselves. When you involve people, you incur a political process. And so here's the challenge in the church in Jerusalem and every church is how on earth do we do God's will with people, right? Those two things are inherent contradictions. (laughs) How do we follow God and do that with people? Because when you bring those two things together, it's very, very difficult. And so here's what's happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is becoming incredibly nationalistic. Nationalistic fervor. You know, we're going to kick out the Romans. We're going to be Jews. We're going to have our own nation. We're going to restore the Davidic empire, right? We're going to bring Israel back. It's just growing and growing. And it's infected even the church. Mm. And, And just as today, right? I mean, if you believe that your Americanism has not affected your Christian faith, you're lying to yourself. Right. I, I, can't, I can't help but be infected by my Americanism because I'm an American. I've been yeah. raised an American. Yeah. You know, I, it has it has affected me. Just like if you're a Latino, it affects you. Or, you know, if you're tidy whitey like us, it affects you. Or if you're black, it affects you. <laughs> or whatever you are, you know, if you're a, a Pakistan immigrant, it affects you. These things affect you. And you have to ask yourself, how is this affecting me positively? And how has it affected me negatively? So here's how being a Jew affected Christians in Jerusalem positively. They knew more about the Bible than everybody else. How did it affect them negatively? They cared more about being Jewish than following Jesus. And this is the death nail. And I see this happen in my own Baptist tradition. You know, I'm a Baptist. Sandals Church is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. You don't ever hear me talk about that. Why? I don't care if you're Baptist. I could care less. I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to worship Jesus. I want you to give your life to Jesus. A lot of people in my Baptist denomination, they want people to be Baptist. Mm -hmm. That's the thing they care about more than anything else. They care about Baptist numbers, Baptist growth, Baptist missions, Baptist, you know, seminaries. And it makes me sick. 
Look, Baptists are a small part of what God's doing. It's not all that God is doing. Mm-hmm. And and that's really, I think, one of the reasons why, you know, my denomination continues to shrink. It's the largest denomination in North America that is not Catholic, but it's shrinking every year because they want to see people become Baptist rather than people become Christian. And that's tragic. Now, you're like, oh my gosh, thank God, you know, you know, my church isn't like that. Look, every church is like this. And so, you know, if you're saying, well, we're an independent Christian church, well, you're even worse because you don't affiliate with anybody but yourself. <laughs> so whatever. Um, you know, I think that's ridiculously unhealthy that, you, you know, we're independent. We figure it out all on our own. Well, there's a word for that. It's called dysfunctional, you know, enjoy. So, wow, I got a little rant there. Yeah. Um, well, I got a question related to what you just said, right? So it, kind of at the end of verse 21, after greeting them, Paul gives a detailed account of things God has accomplished among Gentiles through the ministry. So uh, this is verses 20 through 22. After hearing this, they, and I, I think this is James and the leaders of the Jerusalem church, praised God, and they said, you know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed, and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses. They heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So it sounds to me like the leaders of the church here in Jerusalem are, are really happy that things have progressed um, for Christians in general, especially after the letter that they sent out with Paul in Acts chapter 15, but that maybe the rest of the Christian church behind hasn't really caught up with that attitude or idea. Well, or, and, am I reading it right? And here's why. The church in Jerusalem doesn't have to change. They're in freaking Jerusalem, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have to deal with Gentiles. I mean, all, all of the, the city of Jerusalem is completely catered to being Jewish. It's not a problem. They don't have to... De- the only Gentiles they have to deal with are going to be with the occasional Roman uh, governor, you know, who comes because he would have led full-time from Caesarea Philippi, which is... Or Caesarea, excuse me, uh, the one on the coast, not the one up near Sea of Galilee. Okay. And he would come for holidays and special events in Jerusalem to preside. But for the most part, the only Gentiles they have to deal with are... Roman soldiers, and all the Roman soldiers care about is don't freak out and kill yeah. people. And they're not right? They just want to go drink their booze and party <laughs> like soldiers, and you know they're only going to beat you if they have to. They don't want to. So, so it doesn't affect them, but everywhere else in the Roman Empire, Jews have to deal with Gentiles, and they're going to worship together, and they're going to be together, and it's a real problem. And so here's the question is, is how does a church exist together when you have when you have Gentiles and Jews worshiping together. So here's the problem. So Acts 15 kind of solved it, mm-hmm. right? Don't eat food, sacrifice to idols, you know, don't engage yeah, in sex outside of marriage, you know, don't strangle things, don't be a weirdo. That's basically what they're telling the Gentiles. <laughs> yeah. And they're telling the Jews, you don't have to make them Jewish. And that's fine until you actually try to do it. Mm-hmm. Because the, the ultimate reality is, is how do you obey the law of Moses and have Gentiles over for dinner? How do you do that? It's a real challenge, and ultimately, it divided the church. So Paul is kind of doing what they're saying. I mean, he's not, but he right, he's kind of doing this. He's not telling Jews not to be Jewish, but he is telling them to relax, and he's saying this, obeying the laws of Moses and being circumcised does not save you. The only thing that saves you is repenting of your sins, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what saves you. So that's where Paul loses his mind. Mm-hmm. Being saved doesn't mean you you religiously follow these laws of Moses and you are circumcised. However, the laws of Moses are good, and circumcision is not a bad thing. To Paul, circumcision is like whatever. Mm -hmm. 
but but they're they're accurate. That's what I'm trying to say. Is is part of part of their fear is happening. Mm-hmm. Jews throughout the empire are changing. They're becoming more Gentile. Now here's the tragedy: is they needed to remain Jewish for the sake of Israelis, but it was a struggle because you know again, how do you fellowship with Gentiles and maintain your Jewishness when being a Jew means you don't fellowship mm-hmm. with Gentiles? It is a struggle, and that's why Paul rebukes. You know, like forever in the scriptures, in Galatians, he rebukes Peter, who got caught up in this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a real, real challenge. And so it was just easier in Jerusalem for Jews to live out their faith as Jews than it was anywhere else in the world, which makes sense. Yeah. So, um, and so on the one hand, they're excited. Oh, that's great. Gentiles are following God, but their assumption is they're going to become like us. Mm-hmm. And that's not the gospel. Right. The gospel is we both need to move as close as we can together without you not becoming Jewish and without forcing Gentiles to become Jewish. And so we need to not offend each other and, and move as closely as we can together so that Christ is honored. And ultimately that proved too difficult. You know what? It just feels like the way that, sorry, getting off topic here a little bit, but it's election day and in America at least, there's been such divisiveness on you know, everyone with political agreements, all these other ideas. And I love what you just talked about, how the way of the gospel is coming as close as you can to people who disagree with you without really compromising on on where you're, where you are. Well, we talked about that in Acts 15. I mean, one of the forgotten aspects of the book of Acts is compromise. Mm -hmm. You say that word now and Christians lose their ever loving minds. And it's insane. You know, it's like, look, our country was built on compromise. Acts 15, the first council, the first gathering of apostles and elders, it's about compromise. Mm-hmm. Neither party got exactly what they wanted. Why? Because Christ is the most important thing. And even today within the context of de- de- denominationalism, like no denomination is perfect. They, they're all flawed, including Sandals Church. And I mean, none of us are perfect in the way that we exercise our faith and our theology and belief. And anybody, anybody who believes their church is the most holy in terms of its doctrine, you know, you know, we know what they voted on the legalization of marijuana. They're smoking something, right? They're they're off. I mean, you're just off. Every church is broken. Why? Because we're saved by the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. We're saved by the blood of Christ. None of us are perfect. We're trying at Sandals Church to live out our faith to the best of our ability, but we're never going to get it perfect. And that's why Jesus Christ died on a horrifically bloody cross because we could never get it right. That's what Judaism is about. Do these 613 laws, and you will get it right. And guess what? They couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't. They were practicing all of these laws to the best of their ability, and those people who were closer to what the Bible taught than any human beings in history are the ones who killed Jesus. Hmm. It wasn't good enough. That's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, which is basically like saying this, unless you can be a better basketball player than Michael Jordan, you won't go to heaven. <laughs> right. Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player ever. He's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Pharisees were all Michael Jordans, for, Je- for not for Jesus, but for God. And they weren't good enough. You, our rights, our, our goodness is not good enough. And so um, we, we need to be saved by the blood of Jesus. And that's what's important. And so that's just so important as we read this. And just notice here how the church at Jerusalem, who should have got it, missed it. And know this. You will miss it. I will miss it. We will miss it. And anybody who thinks they don't miss it is missing it, right? <laughs> You're missing it. Mm-hmm. So. so they keep responding to Paul here now and are telling him, you know, after all of this, they ask him to do some kind of weird stuff. They say, here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. 
go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are false and that you've, you yourself observe the Jewish laws. So why are they suggesting Paul take part in this ritual? And why would they think that's a good idea? And what is, what is this ritual that they're talking about? Right. So we don't exactly know what the ritual is. James is being political. He's trying to politically outmaneuver those who are against Gentiles. And so he's saying, if we do this, this will be a public act. He's trying to help Paul, right? He's trying to help Paul that you are still Jewish. You have not abandoned your Jewishness. And again, if you're a Jewish person who's given your life to Christ, please, for the love of Jesus, stay Jewish. <laughs> please, for the love of God, stay Jewish. And unfortunately, you know, this this is something that the church has, has screwed up over 2,000 years. Stay Jewish and love Jesus. If you are a Gentile, for the love of God, don't be Jewish. Nothing drives me more crazy than a bunch of Gentiles running around trying to be Jews. <laughs> Stop. Do, literally, there are crazy Gentiles who love Jesus. They're crazy. And they, they try to act like Jews. It drives me crazy. I don't know why I keep looking at you when I say that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and for the record, I was looking at Justin, not Stephanie. Yes. Well, obviously. So, yeah. Okay. So, we're not exactly sure. People can guess, is this a Nazarite vow? I mean, again, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what the vow is. These four individuals has taken some kind of vow to purify themselves you know, symbolizing their commitment to God. And so again, I think the Jews in Jerusalem are getting pressure from Jews that you are abandoning the law of Moses. And so there's a movement of hyper-nationalism amongst the Jews. And the Christians were infected with this. So they're showing that. So what they're saying is, Paul, we want you to participate in this to show that you're a part of Jewishness, that you've not abandoned your Jewishness. And what's amazing is Paul does it. And what's interesting is James says, I want you to participate in it and pay for it. Yeah. It's a very, very expensive ritual. I mean, so it involved, you know, getting your hair cut in a very, very expensive way. It involved the sacrifice of animals that was expensive. I mean, you, you know, think about it. If, like, if we had to go buy a lamb and eat the whole lamb, that's an expensive process. Right. So it involved the sacrifice of many, many animals. You had to pay the priests to do it. I mean, this is a very, very expensive process. And the hope is that people will go, okay, I see what he's doing, and he's not going to, uh, he's not abandoning his faith. The irony in all of this here, I mean, people always misuse the word irony. Here's the irony. The irony is the very steps that Paul takes to show that he's still a Jew is ultimately what leads to him being accused of not being a Jew. Hmm. And he is almost dies. So his efforts mm -hmm. to prove that he's a Jew ultimately, you know, uh, affect him being killed for not being a Jew. It's pretty bizarre. So he goes to the temple to prove that he's a Jew, and that's where he's accused and almost beaten to death. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, exactly. So he goes there, and it, at the end of this whole purification symbol uh, that says um, the, the Jews from the province of Asia come, and they see Paul in the temple, roused a mob against him. They grabbed him, yelling, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who preaches against our people everywhere and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. And they said that he brought this Greek guy into the temple and all of this stuff. So what's going on in here? What's... What what are they accusing Paul of with bringing people okay, into the so temple there, courts? Okay, so there there are five courts in the temple. So the largest court is the court of the Gentiles, and so let's talk about that for a second because I get this question a lot. You know, why does Sandals Church sell T-shirts and coffee and stuff like that? And okay. you know, because Jesus drove out the vendors from from the temple, and they always so a lot of people have a problem with that. So here's what Jesus was doing: the court of the Gentiles was as close as a non-Jewish person could get to the temple. So it was their house of worship. So we don't sell things. We're not carving space out of our worship centers and telling people they can't worship so we can sell things. 
It's not in the worship center. It is separate from that. God has no problem, and Jesus has no problem with lambs and doves and those things being sold around the temple. Why does he not have a problem with that? Because they have to buy those things. You say, well, why does he have to buy those things? Because if you're a Jew traveling from Asia, you're not going to carry a lamb on your back for a thousand miles. (laughs) What you're going to do is you're going to put some coins in your pocket, and you're going to go to the temple, and you're going to buy the lamb there for sacrifice. It's an efficient way of doing it. And so you had to buy these things somewhere. Jesus' point is, and he probably wouldn't have had a problem if it was a small section, they had completely taken over it, and it was full. Basically, the court of the Gentiles was turned into a giant bank. And so people, think about it, the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, Gentiles from all over the world who had gathered together to worship the one true God, they can't do it. So they weren't selling things in the court of the women. They weren't selling things in the court of Jewish men. They weren't selling things in the court of Jewish priests. And they certainly weren't selling things in the holiest of holies. So there's five courts, the Gentiles, there's the court of of Jewish women, there's the court of Jewish men, there's the court of Jewish priests, the Levites and the priests, and then there's the court the, the area of the holies of holies where only the high priest can go once a year. Mm-hmm. And so those are the five areas, which is a, think of it, a, a, of a movement closer and closer to the heart of God. Right. And that's the way that they saw it. And actually, so here's what they accuse Paul of. Um, we, you can actually see these stones. They've actually found these stones. So a lot of people are like, oh, I don't believe the Bible is accurate. As you walk through these courts, they were separated by walls. And as you would walk through the walls, there were doorways. And on these doorways had stones that basically said this, death to anyone who violates this. Hmm. So if you're a Gentile and you walk into the Jewish court, there would have been a stone that said, death from above, basically, by God to anyone who enters this. Hmm. And they have these stones. They have it in the Palestinian Museum in Israel. And they have one of these stones, I believe it's in the museum in um, uh, Istanbul. They've unearthed these stones. They found these things. It's incredible. And so... Right? So it's, it's warned, don't you dare bring a Gentile into this area. And they're accusing Paul of doing that, even though he would have walked through the doorway that said, if you do that, you'll die. Okay. So they grab him. And so here's what's ironic on their part. They accuse Paul of bringing Gentiles into the Jewish area. Well, guess what happens because of what they do? You know, literally Armageddon comes and, and, and all these Roman soldiers are going to have to enter in and, and settle this thing down. Now, it oh, says they're going to come pull, all the way into... Well, they're going to go as far as they need to. I think the text says that they pulled them out. But ultimately, I mean, now what happens? You have soldiers everywhere in the temple. And so a lot of people don't realize this, but, you know, the Jews are crazy, man. I mean, this thing in the Middle East is crazy. So whenever they would gather together for, you know, Pentecost, Passover, those were the most dangerous times for the Romans. And so what the Romans did is they built, think of it, basically a military barracks. It's called the uh, Court of Antonia. And they built this Jewish, or excuse me, this uh, Roman barracks where they kept soldiers literally overlooking the temples. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So you, because, right, I mean, if you need, even today, like if we went to the temple today, you walk over this creepy bridge, you go through like a metal detector, and you literally walk over. And if you look down, a lot of people don't, but if you look down, you will see couple hundred Israeli police officers dressed in riot gear sitting around playing cards. Why? Because when the feces meets the fan, mm-hmm. you can't wait for the cops to get there. They have to be there because it gets out of control so fast. So even today it's this way. Mm-hmm. Now they're not up overlooking, they're down below, but they can get up there rather quickly. And if you pay attention, a lot of people don't, as you're walking up the ramp, you're walking by police shields life-size police shields. They're all stacked. So they don't have to carry those. They just run with their weapons, grab, put on their helmet, grab their police shields, and run into the temple. 
It's pretty crazy. Hmm. So the Romans did the same thing because the Jews would be hyper excited yeah. about their nationalism. You get a hundred thousand of them together, things get out of control, and the and the Romans would come in and suppress it. So um, that's what happens. Okay, so this is exactly where we pick up in verse 30. It says, The whole city was rocked by these accusations and a great riot followed. Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple and immediately the gates were closed behind him. As they were trying to kill him, the word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd. When the mom saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. Now, I'm just wondering, when I was reading through this, this moment seems really similar to when Jesus returns to Jerusalem and basically gets turned against by his own people. Is that kind of what's happening here for Paul too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Luke 9, 23, probably the most important verse, if you are thinking about becoming a Christian um, in the gospel is, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul is walking in the steps of Jesus and literally almost the same things are happening to him, except he's not going to make it to the cross. They're going to kill him. I mean, they're going to rip his body apart. I mean, think. Luke says the entire city was caught up in an uproar. This is, in, it's insanity. Mm-hmm. So um, things just get crazy. And uh, the Roman soldiers run in to save Paul. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of animosity between Christians and Jews for 2,000 years. And here's the truth. Christians have done horrific acts to Jews and they are unspeakable and they are wrong. What is that rooted in? That the birth of Christianity... Christians were extraordinarily persecuted by Jews. And that's where it comes from in this animosity. And that doesn't, that doesn't make Christians right uh, because we are to forgive our enemies and to love our neighbors. And it just, you just need to understand that, that it's gone both ways. Now, you know, Jews have certainly got it for a longer period of time because Christians became dominant and a much larger group for a, a much longer period of yeah. time. But the animosity started from Jews who had rejected Jesus. And that's where this ugliness begins. And that's why historically anti-Semitism or being anti-Jewish uh, has come from, you know, people reading the, the Bible and not, you know, realizing, look, this is an internal struggle and it's a period of ugliness, but we're called to be like Jesus and not hate each other. And so, you know, people are always looking for a reason to be racist. And if you can find it in scripture, you know, that's better for people who want to be racist. And that's where a lot of this stuff comes from is mm. look at what the Jews did. The, the problem is Paul's a Jew. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's an internal dispute. So you, you, you can't hate, you know, the entire group because of the actions of a few in political power. So so in verses 33, uh, the Roman commander arrests Paul and orders him bound with two chains. Uh, he asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Some shouted one thing, some another. Since he couldn't find out the truth in all the uproar and confusion, he ordered that Paul be taken to the fortress. As Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent, the soldiers had to lift him to their shoulders to protect him, and the crowd followed behind, shouting, kill him, kill him. So is is this essentially the fulfillment of what Agabus was talking about earlier when he took the belt of Paul? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Agabus said, man, this is what's going to happen, and right, I mean, how do you know to, whether or not to trust a prophet? Their words come true, and it came true in a bad way for Paul. So exactly what Agabus warned him about. Let's go back to this, though. So we talked about who to believe. I want you to notice the difference that the church told Paul not to go. Agabus did not. Mm. Agabus simply prophesied, this is what will happen. So it's interesting to note that Agabus did not say, don't go. He simply said, when you go, this is what will happen. Mm. Um, So Agabus spoke truth and was not off in any way. Um, Yeah, this is an ugly, ugly scenario. And uh, Paul... 
Paul's life is spared, interestingly enough, by those who crucified Christ. And um, it, it's just crazy. It's pandemonium. And, um, you know, hats off to the Romans here. You know, the Roman government, certainly, there's a lot left to be desired, but they valued uh, process. They valued uh, having, a, a, you know, an opportunity to speak for yourself. I mean, many of the American ideals that we have, you know, come from, you know, this country uh, called Rome that tried to uh, inject a legal process into the craziness of life. And so again, they did a lot of crazy things, but you have to tip your hat to them that they try to save Paul's life. And interestingly enough, the Roman officer assumes that Paul's a terrorist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty profound that he assumes that Paul probably has this, deserves this, but saves him anyways. Yeah. Pretty profound. Yeah, he, he thinks that he's like this Egyptian rebellion leader or something. Yeah, so we don't know a lot about this guy, um, but uh, um, yeah, the, 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 the word, the Roman word here is, uh, I have to look it up, it's like scalia or scalia, or I think it's scalia, no, that's just a scalia. That's a, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, what it means is like throat cutter is what it means. And so that's the word that they're using to describe Paul is, are you that Egyptian throat cutter? It's where we get the English word terrorist. Hmm. Um it's a pretty nasty word, and so one of the one of the ways that um, these terrorists would kill Roman governors is they would mingle into a crowd, hide a knife, you know, in their robe, stab the person, and then flee in the midst of the crowd. And that's the way that they did their dirty work. And so this guy from Egypt got a group. Uh, Luke says four thousand, I think he says. Mm -hmm. I think Josephus, the Jewish historian, says forty thousand. Oh wow! So either way. Uh, you know, Josephus was known to exaggerate, so most scholars think Luke's number is the accurate number, but he convinced uh, 4,000 Jewish men to try to take the fortress at Jerusalem, and that did not go well, <laughs> because the Romans knew how to fight, and they were really, really good at killing people. So, But uh, a lot of people fled, but this Egyptian, or a lot of people died, but the Egyptian guy got away. So the assumption is, Paul's this guy, and Paul says, no, 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 I am Paul from Tarsus, and he <laughs> speaks it in Greek, which actually surprises the um, the uh, commander. The commander, because what it means is Paul's educated, mm -hmm. and he's somebody to be reckoned with. So, yeah. And then right after this, um, Paul asks this commander to speak to the crowd, and he agrees. It says Paul stood on the stairs and motioned the people to be quiet. Soon, a deep silence enveloped the crowd, and he addressed them in their own language, Aramaic. So this leaves off the chapter this huge cliffhanger because we don't know what Paul's about to say. Why would Paul, or why would the commander let Paul just talk to everyone after everything that just happened? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why he would do that. He, he is under no legal, uh, he must have been moved by Paul uh, or struck by Paul, you know, his calmness in this situation. I mean, here he is almost killed and Paul says, you know, I'm going to really talk to these guys. It's a bizarre setting and situation. And um, the only thing I can say is that God's in control and God is moving and he's going to allow Paul to speak. And God uses broken, corrupt governments, and that's what Rome was, mm -hmm. uh, to allow his will to be done. And we need to be thankful. And I just on that note, no matter what happens today in the election, I'm sure when many of you hear this, the news will already be out with whoever our president is, you know, whether it's uh, Mrs. Clinton, uh, Secretary Clinton, or Donald Trump, either way, God is sovereign, God is in control, and we need to trust him in that and know that even in a broken process, God can work miracles and his truth can be spoken. And so I hope those words comfort you. Um, you know, as you hear these words, either your candidate will be elected or your candidate lost. I am nervous either way. So uh, I just need to, I, I just trust that God is in control and he can, uh, he can work 
uh, in miraculous ways. So I hope that comforts you. And, um, you know, it's pretty powerful, right? I mean, I think America's being torn apart by its differences. We have Paul being torn apart by Jewish differences. So not much has changed in 2,000 years. Um, it's just nice to know that God's in control, no matter how uh, incompatible we seem to be with each other. So um, next week's awesome. Like I said, the next uh, seven chapters is a whirlwind tour all the way to Rome, and it's powerful. Totally. So don't miss out. Well, that was an awesome ride through Acts chapter 21. Super great. Excellent show number 40. Super great. Listen, if you guys are enjoying the debrief, man, we appreciate you guys supporting us here on the show. And uh, I just want to invite you guys to help help us continue doing what we're doing. Man, if you are listening to the debrief every single week and you are not already attending Sandals Church and giving here on a regular basis, we would love to invite you and even ask you to head on over to sandalschurch.com slash give and see if you can help support the show. We've got uh, a lot of great things trying to go on here. And uh, you've already heard the first of several few announcements that we've got coming up over the next couple of weeks about how the debrief is going to get even better in 2017. The first, obviously, being that we are hiring somebody uh, full-time to come help produce the show. So if you can head on over to sandalschurch.com slash give, we would super appreciate it. If you do attend Sandals Church and you're here on the weekends, picking up one of those debrief shirts or stickers is another great way where you can help support what is going on here on the show. And if neither of those are working for you, if you can be sure to follow us on Facebook, and share the posts uh, when we release a new episode so we get more people listening to the show. We would appreciate it. Yeah, and if you want to get your questions here on the show, you can always hit us up on Facebook. Just hit the big send a message button, send in your question. We would love to get those here in front of Pastor Matt, or you can also send those in at our website at debrief.show. And while you're at debrief.show slash 40, you can find the show notes for this episode, including that the uh, the fish image that Pastor Matt was talking about and a link to apply for the job. You can get that as well, bit.ly slash debrief job. It's bit.ly slash debrief job. If you want to help us make this show even better, we would totally appreciate it. We're, or if you just want to spread the word about the position, we would appreciate that. We want to hire somebody super awesome to join the super team. Is that wrong and prideful for me to say? Just call, I just called us the super team. I'm sorry. No, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate right. it. It made me feel loved and appreciated. Yeah, it made me feel super. Excellent. That is great. All right, guys. It's been another episode that was awesome. But before we go, it's time to learn some Christianese. Learning Christianese. I think I'm learning Christianese. I really think so. Learning Christianese. I think I'm learning Christianese. I really think so. That's right. Well, this week in learning Christianese, I hear this phrase come up a lot when people are praying or wrapping up small groups or... Why am I nervous? Oh, you should never be nervous. I just want to know what you think Christians mean when they say the phrase traveling mercies. <laughs> Give them some traveling mercies. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know because Paul didn't get any of that. Apparently, <laughs> apparently the Apostle Paul did not know how to I pray know, for... He got out of some pretty weird shipwrecks, I think, later. So. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but he got... Well, he's he going to get, get bit by like a he poisonous viper. Okay. You know, I mean, he's going to be, you know, beaten and shipwrecked and... Dude, if um, the Apostle Paul was traveling nowadays, he'd be on that plane from Mexico where the snake yeah, got but the snake it. would have fallen on him and bit him. Yes. And if you didn't if you didn't Google that, you got to Google that because there's a poisonous viper that fell out of the over overhead compartment on a Mexico, you know, plane, man. The I worst mean, thing in the world. Oh my gosh, dude, that is like terrifying. And they had to land in an emergency plane and they had to bring on, uh, what do you call those people that catch animals? What are those called? Animal Saviors. Godsends. Godsends. I think animal control <laughs> Snake agents. Snake wranglers. <laughs> Snake wranglers. I don't know what it was, but they had to do that. Okay, so traveling mercies is simply saying, God, don't let me blow up or get killed on the way. So <laughs> that's what it means. That's hilarious. Traveling mercies. 
I need to pray that over my stomach because I get like traveler's <laughs> diarrhea you know like That's every true. time. Yeah. You've you've I've experienced the you. traveler diarrhea. Yeah. It's rough. Yours, not Yeah. You hopefully you haven't experienced mine. No. I mean I don't think I've had I've a blowout. I've not experienced what you have experienced. I don't think I've had a blowout around you. No, thank God. Have you had a blowout? Uh, that was my traveling mercy is that I did not uh, experience your blowout. Oh my gosh, man. And some of you right now are grossed out. That just means you have not traveled because I don't know what it is about my stomach. My, I think my body and soul loves Jesus, but my stomach loves the devil. I don't know what it is, but I eat <laughs> bad wrestling inside of you. things. Yeah. Think Ghostbusters. It's bad. Hey, Dan, I was just listening to the debrief, the first part of it. Justin Party has gone downhill. He is finished. He just said, old ladies. <laughs> Ask him, what, who, how old is old? <laughs> hey, I'm 66 and still cute. You just wait till I see Justin party Sunday. It's Patty. Bye. <laughs> oh, ladies, huh? <laughs> We're going to have a long chat with Justin party. Bye. <laughs>